Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine, and I have a confession for y'all. I've been a fan of the Grateful Dead since I was in high school, and today I am very excited to be talking with someone who performed with that band for some of their most formative years. Donna Jean Godshow McKay got her start as a session singer when she was just a teenager in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and her voice appeared on iconic hits by Percy Sledge, Elvis Presley, Neil Diamond, and others. Eventually, she moved to California in pursuit of adventure, and that's what she found when she met Jerry Garcia and joined the Grateful Dead. We'll talk about all that, her grandmother's delicious biscuits, and why her family calls her the Forrest Gump of rock and roll on this week's Biscuits and Jam. Well, Donna Jean Godshow McKay, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Well, Southern Living, <laughs> this is amazing that I'm talking to you and very glad to do so. Well, it is a real honor for me to have you on this podcast. I have been a huge fan of the Grateful Dead for most of my life, and I've been listening to your recordings for about 40 years, so it is very nice to talk to you in person. Well, that lets you know how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> and me. <laughs> Both, but still, here I am at age 75, and I cannot believe that it's been this long since I was in that band. And here we are still talking about it. And talking about it is great, and I love it. And so let's go. Well, I want to start out talking a little bit about your hometown of Florence, Alabama. You grew up in a kind of mythical place for someone who loves music. Tell me a little bit about your hometown. Well, I was born in Florence, Alabama, and this is where I live right now. And by the time I was 12 years old, I knew that I wanted to be a songwriter. I wanted to be a singer. I wanted some musical experience. And it just happened that stars fell on Alabama at that time. <laughs> they sure did. <laughs> they surely did. And when I was 12 years old, wrote my first song that got really any attention when I was on a local television talent contest. And I won for writing a song, singing it, and playing piano on TV. And that alerted a couple of people in the Muscle Shoals area to send me to Rick Hall Studio, which was above this drugstore in Florence, Alabama. And that's where I went into my first studio and I got the recording bug <laughs> that just absolutely took me over. I saw all the wires and all the equipment and everything and and it was not only the singing part of it, it was the electronic part of it. The whole view of the music industry just took my brain and never left. As you can well tell, <laughs> it never left. And it all started there at Rick Hall Studio in Florence, Alabama. And this was early 60s. Now, Donna Jean, I've heard you say that your dad played guitar a little bit. Was there a lot of music in your family? You know, 
he did a little bit, but not professionally or anything that I could really draw attention to. But the fact that my dad loved the guitar and I heard chords and I heard music from an early age really gripped me. I had to have it. And if I may go on for a second about this, when I was about six, maybe seven years old, something like that, and I wanted a piano, I just was so musically inclined all of my life. But my mother understood my love of music, even at that age. I couldn't have a piano. My dad was in the Army. We moved, and there was no room for anything that big in our house. And my mother understood me so much at that young age, at six years old, that she took glasses out of our cupboard and filled them each with different levels of water and gave me a spoon. I would make music from those glasses of water, depending on the amount of water that was in the glass, made a different tone. And I wrote music on those glasses. Wow. In my sensibility, I started writing music at that age and understanding the difference in tonalities. And it grew from there. And I never quit and couldn't get over it. So here I am still today talking about this. What a beautiful thing that is. I love that. What a creative mom, too. Yes. Did you have a mentor when you were trying to make it as a singer? Well, as a mentor, I guess you would have to say that it was Jeannie Green. Jeannie was married to Marlon Green, who eventually we were all involved in the recording of When a Man Loves a Woman at Quinby Studio in Sheffield, Alabama in the 60-somethings. You can tell me what year it was. I don't even know anymore. I think 1966 is what I well, read. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. But it was Jeannie and Marlon who really kind of concisely took an interest in me and taught me how to sing as an ensemble, and just directed me musically. They were invaluable to me, and still are. And Jeannie has passed, but I am still in touch with Marlene Green, and will always be one of my best friends, and someone that I look up to extremely. I've got to ask you about that recording. I mean, that is just one of the great songs of all time, When a Man Loves a Woman. And I'm wondering what it felt like to be in the studio with Percy Sledge. Did you get the sense that something really special was happening? Well, I keep saying that you never know when you're making history. And, of course, we didn't know at that time. All we knew was that we loved music and we had to do it. It was a have-to thing. It wasn't something that we wanted to do or what you call a, a project. It was something that you had to do. And it was so viable and so predominant at that time for us that 
we didn't care what happened. We just had to do it. And what happened was When a Man Loves a Woman became the number one song in the nation. And I remember when Jeannie Green and I took the Billboard magazine that showed When a Man Loves a Woman is number one in the nation. Percy was in the hospital. Oh, for a kidney infection or something. Jeannie and I took the Billboard magazine into his hospital room and showed him that When a Man Loves a Woman was number one. It's those kind of things that you can never forget, yet you didn't know at the time that they meant anything, really. It was big for us on a certain level, but we didn't realize how big the world was and how much bigger that it was going to become. And it was an amazing thing to watch When a Man Loves a Woman become what it is today. I mean, it's all over the world. You know that. Oh, everywhere. And and we're still talking about it. And I bet I hear it on the radio every couple of weeks. It's just part of the fabric of everything. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. So, Donna Jean, you also got to know Elvis. And you sang on one of his biggest hits of all time, Suspicious Minds, in, I think, 1968 or so. And he was a really big deal by then. So that must have been very exciting to be part of that recording. What was your favorite memory of that experience? Well, if I might go back, darling, to when I was please <laughs> nine years old, living in Louisiana and going to see Love Me Tender at the theater. And I wore my best frock that I could because it was such a special occasion to see Elvis Presley in his first movie. And the audience was screaming. And if I had known at that time that I would be singing with him, I don't think I could have lived You know, it would have just been too much (laughs) that I could be in the same room with Elvis Presley, much less singing with him at any later date. So that's one aspect of mine and Elvis's love affair from afar, of course. And then to get the news that Elvis has asked our voice group to be on his recording that he was doing in Memphis. We screamed for hours. (laughs) Elvis wants us to be a part of this. And what had happened was Elvis was recording in Memphis, of course, and he heard the demo that our voice group had done on the song Suspicious Minds. And from what I understand and what people have told me, that Elvis said, I want that song and I want those girls. And the rest is definitely history that I'm so proud of. Oh, I mean, what a song. There's so much energy in it. What was he like as a person? Well, let me say this. My back was turned when he came into the studio and I knew he was there. That's what kind of aura and energy that Elvis Presley brought into any room. And I knew that he was in the room. Mm. 
our voice group, we just did projects here and there. We had sang on hit records, but Elvis Presley, that was another realm. The thing was, we were so excited, yet we were professional. And we just did our job, and it was boom, boom, boom. This is what we do, and we did it. Elvis was in the control room listening to us and actually listened to all of our voices independently on the microphone. It was a big deal, and we were so professional and didn't blow it at all or get starstruck. (laughs) No, no, no. We didn't do any of that. And the recording was done, and we, of course, did not only Suspicious Minds, but In the Ghetto, Rubbernecking, and a whole bunch of others that were on that album. But then, when the session was over, and we left, and we went to the International House of Pancakes (laughs) in Memphis, and we had this one little photo that's still the only photo of us with Elvis, that we had, and we just screamed bloody murder (laughs) in the house of pancakes, just screamed, we just sang with Elvis Presley, you know, and we lost it. But during the session, we were so cool, calm, collected, and professional. (laughs) What a great story. It is a great story, and I'm very proud of it. And there's a lot more to that story that maybe is for another time. Well, Donna Jean, you had an incredible job in Muscle Shoals, especially for someone who loves to sing, loves music as much as you did. I mean, everybody was coming to you. Neil Diamond, Aretha Franklin, Cher. Yeah. Why did you decide to move to California? Well, I never sang with Aretha Franklin. And that's another misconception that's out there that I sang with Otis Redding. They were here recording, but I never sang with Mm. those two individuals. Mm. So I can clarify that. But Neil Diamond, yes. Neil Diamond, yes. Yeah. And that was a wonderful experience. And he is so great. Can't say enough good things about Neil Diamond and his talent. He was incredible. But the thing is... For me, after five years of being in the vocal group that I was in. Which was called? We were called Southern Comfort. I had a really good career going on, but I had been in the South all of my life, had never really been out of the South, except we were called to New York to do a session with Benny King. And that was the only time I had really been out of the South. And I thought, I just want another experience. And I just had this, this is a Southern way to say it, but a hankering. (laughs) I had a hankering uh, to go someplace else and experience something. And I wanted to go to California. And a friend of mine, Brenda, who married Roger Hawkins eventually, moved out there which gave me the energy and the impetus to really get out there on my own. And I told my mother and my father, I'm going to California. And I left my career and everything just to have another adventure 
And it was not to leave anything. It was to do something more. I just wanted a new adventure in my life. Well, boy, did you get one. Never think that what you ask for is not going to happen. I got to California and everything changed. Most people were into the Grateful Dead and I'd never heard of the Grateful Dead. And I thought, oh my God, what a horrible name. <laughs> and oh, these people, they're just on drugs and blah, blah, blah. I just had no interest in what was going on out there until I saw the Grateful Dead and it changed my life. So talk to me about that. I mean, what was that like the first time that you saw them perform live? Well, I'm a Southern girl. And so I just don't take things just like by rote. I've got to experience it. You've got to nail me on it. So I was telling people, well, they must be good looking or something. They don't know how to play music. I had been in Muscle Shoals where everything was so structured and arranged and produced. Jerry Wexler, Tom Dowd, name all of these guys. That's who I was used to working with. And then hearing about the Grateful Dead, I thought, they don't know how to play music. They don't know how to make records. What is all of this about? And I was forced to go to a Grateful Dead concert by friends of mine. And I said, Okay, I'm going to prove to you guys that it's only drugs, it's only this, and it's only that. You guys are nuts. And they made me go to a concert. And so I was in Winterland, the arena, in San Francisco, the last row of the balcony, with some friends of mine that I had met once I had gotten in San Francisco. And the Grateful Dead came on after a few other bands, and it blew my mind. And I went, holy crap. How do they do that? How do they do that? It was something that I had not been exposed to musically at all on any level. And I stayed up all night after that concert. And I said, how do they do that? And it just took me into another musical place. And I talked to the person next to me sitting there, and I don't remember who it was. It could have been Keith, who became my husband. I can't remember who I was sitting next to. But I said, when I sing again, it's going to be with that band. And that's it. And so how did you and Keith end up getting into the band? Gosh, Sid, this is a long story. Do you want to hear the long story? Sure. What's this? There <laughs> must be a shorter version of it. The shorter version that I can talk about on Southern Living <laughs> in this podcast is that Keith and I got married. That's a whole nother story. But Keith and I got married and I said, Let's listen to some Grateful Dead. And Keith said, I don't want to listen to it anymore. I want to play it. And of course, Keith was a consummate keyboard player. I mean, beautiful piano player who had grown up classical and with jazz. He knew what he was doing. And I knew what he was doing because I had been in the music business. 
you know? And I said, okay, well then let's go get in the band. (laughs) And so Keith and I went down to a Jerry Garcia band gig that was in San Francisco. And I pulled Garcia aside when he was leaving to go backstage for intermission. And I poked him on the shoulder and I said, Keith and I have something I want to talk to you about. He just looked at me right in the eye and he said, okay, we'll come backstage. And Keith and I were too afraid to do that. And so we were just sitting there in this venue and Garcia came out from backstage and sat down next to us. And I said, well, here's the thing. Keith and I need to talk to you about something because he is your next piano player and I need your home telephone number so that we can call you and set up a time for you guys to play. And the rest is history. That's the short version. <laughs> so they got together and they obviously hit it off right away. Right away. So Donna Jean, take me to the first time that you performed with the dead. I mean, you've been a studio musician for your whole life up to this point. And to get on that stage and play in front of a very different crowd than you'd played in front of before, what was that experience like? Well, Sid, I had never been on stage before. So your first time on stage was with the Grateful Dead? Yes. (laughs) I walked out on stage, Winterland, New Year's Eve, 1971, I believe it was, and sang in front of this audience that was just what the hell? This girl coming out and singing with our boys? It took some guts. And I credit my Southern guts. We're talking about Southern living. I attribute my Southern guts to my Southern living. You go for it, and then you know who you are, and you go get it. And it gave me all of the impetus, energy, and determination that I needed to get out there on that stage in front of that audience who obviously hated me, didn't want me. Oh, I don't know about that. And (laughs) well, maybe later, but at that time it was like, this is what you get right now. Deal with it. (laughs) You know, I say that with that kind of edge right now, but Back then, it was a little horrifying. But you really brought something to the band that they didn't have. And I think about some of the songs, particularly earlier songs, I think about Going Down the Road, Feeling Bad, or Deal, or One More Saturday Night. And you became just such a huge part of those songs. Were there certain songs that you kind of gravitated to and you said, okay, I've got this. I know what this is. This is the blues. This is like Muscle Shoals music. What were some of the songs that you really kind of gravitated to? I gravitated to any of the songs that meant something to me. And like you said, that I could relate to. And those were most of the Grateful Dead songs. Show, you 
because most of the Grateful Dead songs had so many musical influences, and so much of it was Southern. Right. It's Southern music that has so influenced so much of the music that we hear all the time and have heard for decades and decades and decades. And so I related to so much of it that nothing really took me by surprise. I was raised in the South, and I knew the language, and I knew the music. Mm. So I hope that answers that question. Sure does. <laughs> After the break, I'll talk more with Donna Jean Godshow McKay about being in the studio with the Grateful Dead and the secret to her grandmother's biscuits. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with the Grateful Dead backup singer and Alabama native Donna Jean Godshow McKay. So, Donna Jean, today is May 8th. Yep. Which is kind of a significant day in Grateful Dead history because it's the date of a show at Cornell in 1977 that's widely thought to be one of the best performances and best recordings ever made. I'm wondering if you have any sense, did you have any sense during that show or during that particular year that something kind of extraordinary was happening? Well, I'll say again, you never know when you're making history or you're a part of history or something is going to outlast you. You never know that. And that's one of the beautiful things about it is that if you know it, it's not authentic. And I mean, let's face it, we never knew anything. We didn't know what we were doing. We were just playing music. And especially at that time in that era, this is 70s, we didn't know anything. All we cared about was playing music. And so we weren't looking to 40 years or 30 years or 20 years or 10 years or even two years beyond that. And we were just interested in playing that gig. And so when I look back on that, it was a gig. Right. When I listen to it now, I go, oh, my God, (laughs) that was (laughs) incredible. I think anybody with any sense who is a musician, artist or whatever, and looks back on something they didn't realize at the time, and then now they can look at with such different eyes and different ears and a different perspective and different decades can go, oh my gosh, that was incredible. And so I think that's the way, at least when I was in the band in that era at that time, that we thought about everything. Yeah. It was, what is tonight? How are we focusing as a band tonight? And that was our goal. And then it turns out that 50 years later, the goal is gold. It is golden. And to be honest, that's something that's missing today, Mm. is that kind of perspective on things. You know, people are thinking about, what's my music going to be tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. And we didn't have that. It didn't matter. 
what mattered was what we were playing today and how we felt. And it was for nothing. It wasn't for money. It wasn't for popularity. It was that we have to play this music. And it is our life. And uh, and just being in the moment. Being in the moment. But I tell you, we still haven't talked about biscuits, Sid. <laughs> when are we going to talk about biscuits? <laughs> well, we can talk about biscuits right now. Who was the cook in your family? Well, it was my mother, basically, and my grandmother, and of course, all of my aunts. They were just the best Southern cooks, and I loved their cooking so much. As a matter of fact, my grandmother made biscuits so <laughs> well, and just like I've never tasted before. And I said, Nanny, that's what I called her, Nanny. Nanny, how do you make these biscuits taste so good? And she said, well, honey, you just have to hold your mouth right. <laughs> That was her Southern expression of it's just got to be in the moment. You got to feel it. And of course, that is translated on so many levels in my life in regard to music and everything else. You know, you've just got to feel it. You can't just recipe it out. You know, right. Do you know how to make her biscuits? I mean, did you get that recipe from her? No. And the reason that I didn't is because. I never learned how really to cook myself until after I moved to California. And I was almost 23 years old, and my mother always cooked for us, and everything was cooked for me. So I never did get the approach of how to cook Southern food. And it was not until I got to California and realized that I couldn't get cornmeal anywhere. Not like you can get in the South. You know, it's that sweet stuff. And so if I wanted to make cornbread or cornbread dressing, which we always had in the South, I couldn't get it unless my mother shipped it to me. And it cost her 10 times more to ship it to me than the cornmeal actually cost. But it was worth it because you could not get that in California. <laughs> and um, I remember when we first moved to Petaluma, California, and I tried to grow okra because I love fried okra. I tried to grow it, and I got two pods, two, two pods of okra in my That home. won't get you very far. No, because the nights are so cool. And to grow okra, you've got to have hot nights. You've got to have hot days and hot nights. And we didn't have that in California. Other than biscuits, what are some dishes that really make you think of home? Well, of course, the fried okra. Now, I think that it has come to pass recently in the South that there's not as much bacon grease cooking as there used to be. Am I right about that? Or am I wrong? <laughs> I think that's probably true, but there's plenty of bacon grease to go around here. But I think it's changing. I think some attitudes about cooking and health are coming across more in the South than before. And I appreciate that. And like I said, I, I didn't grow up cooking as a Southern cooker. I grew up in California cooking. 
And so then when I came back here in 1994, I just basically kind of incorporated what I had learned in California to augment the cooking style and still make good Southern food, but a little healthier. So I'm glad about that. So what are your go-to dishes when you're cooking here? Okay. Well, like I said, I love the fried okra and still with all of the biscuit menus that you can get around here in all of these fast food restaurants, they don't even come close to my grandmother's biscuits. And so I don't have them as often as I would like. Let's see. I make a really, really mean macaroni and cheese. Oh, okay. That's serious business. That is serious business. And of course, I use several cheeses and I do different things to it. But you got to have macaroni and cheese when you live in the South or even when you live anywhere. Everybody loves macaroni and cheese. Now, was that something that y'all had around the holidays or is that just a weekday special in your house? We had that relatively routinely. And the other thing that I learned to cook way differently when I got to California, as far as taste-wise, is green beans. Because in the South, they were cooked to smithereens in bacon grease. Yeah, they're almost unrecognizable by the time you're done, right? Yeah, just cooked to death. (laughs) So it wasn't until I got to California that I realized that green beans could be a healthier way of serving them. Yeah. I have to say and confess, I still love that taste (laughs) of those old-style green beans that my grandmother made. Well, Donna Jean, when I think of green beans, I think of the holidays. And I'm wondering, what did the holidays look like in your house as a kid? I mean, was it a big affair? Lots of people bringing dishes? Yeah, it was an event. It was a potluck, and everybody would bring something. And one of my aunts would bring her squash casserole, which was always great. And I always made green bean casserole, which I still make to this day. I love green bean casserole. And of course, the whole turkey thing. But it's now that my kids are way grown up. (laughs) I have to say they're way grown up. And mom, can we have some salmon or some filet mignon or something? We don't have to have turkey for every event. But it's still a tradition, and you still have to go with that in certain situations, and especially like Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter. It's a tradition to have turkey and gravy and all that, and dressing. But I still love the Southern dressing. I don't make any other kind of dressing except cornbread dressing, you know. Well, and I'm glad you said dressing and not stuffing. Oh, it's dressing, darling. Darling. (laughs) Who are you talking to right now? (laughs) Every now and then we hear somebody say stuffing. We have to correct No, 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 (laughs) no. No. It's dressing. So, Donna Jean, you have a connection to Louisiana as well, don't you? Yes, I do. What is your connection to Louisiana? Well, I went to school there when I was in grammar school, Baton Rouge and Opelousas. The funny thing is the Grateful Dead was on tour and we were playing in Baton Rouge where I used to live and went to school at Nicholson School in Baton Rouge. And I thought, I'm going to take the limo. I'm going to get in the limo and go down there and see my old school. 
And you know what? Where my house was that I lived in and right next to that school was God Show's department store. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Spelled the same way. Spelled the same way. I landed playing with the Grateful Dead in Baton Rouge at God Show's department store. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) Anyway, my life has such incredible turns, you wouldn't believe it. In fact, my brother Ivan says, Donna, you are the real Forrest Gump of rock and roll. Because I have been so many places and in so many situations that are just outrageous. I love that. (laughs) You talked about your grandmother's biscuits. Tell me about your grandmother as a person. What was her name? Where did she come from? What's her story? She was from Town Creek, Alabama. Her name was Maddie. And she was the most seriously wonderful, wonderful Christian person. She didn't sew on Sundays, but if there was something that needed to be done and it was on a Sunday, she would make a concession and do it for us because her love was what shined above her religion. And I always appreciated that about her because I knew it was a big deal. And like I said, she was a a great cook and really influenced me and being a human being. And I have to say that even my parents were very supportive of me doing what I was getting into at a very early age. You know, by the time I was 15, I was singing in recording studios. That was way different than anybody else was doing in the area at the time. I had a great upbringing. They knew how to raise a child. And they did their best with me, and I still ended up going to California and joining the circus, you know. (laughs) But I had a great upbringing. Well, Donna Jean, you had all this studio time in Muscle Shoals, and you also spent a lot of time in the studio with Grateful Dead and with Jerry Garcia. What was it like being in the studio with them and being a part of several albums? That was a very different side of the band. Well, on the road was one thing. On the road is hard, no matter how you can describe that. But being in the studio with them was a comedy routine. (laughs) It was amazing, for instance, to come into the studio and Garcia goes, I, well, I have this new song. It's called Scarlet Begonias, or name all of those incredible things that he wrote. And to be a part of some of the greatest iconic songs of the Grateful Dead at that time, my heart is full of all of those memories. We would get in front of the microphone, and it was just idiotic. And they were both so funny, and we had so much fun that I think if you could look deep enough, you could see how much fun we had because it was so crystal and clear and pure. We were on the same page together. And not only was it funny and beautiful, but it was real, and it was dynamic and it was professional. And we did all of that, and it is what it is. (laughs) 
Donna Jean, when was the last time you talked to Jerry? The last time I talked to Jerry, they had played here in Birmingham. And I believe it was, was it 95? That sounds right. They played in Birmingham. And my husband, David McKay, and I went to see them. And it was slightly painful for me because everything had changed in the way that they related to one another. It was all different. And I was a little bit taken back by that. And then the next morning, Jerry asked me, we had stayed in the same hotel, to come up and have breakfast with him. And Jerry and I talked about the most wonderful, sweetest, personal experiences that we had had together and laughed and laughed and laughed. And he was exuberant. He was alive. He was clean. And I had the most hopeful thought that things were going to change because I had heard such bad stuff. And then it was a few months later that he passed. But that time that I had with him, I couldn't give you any more example of something that I was prouder of and affected me so much is that time with him. Well, what a wonderful thing that you have that memory and that you had that goodbye, even though you didn't know at the time it was goodbye. I didn't know it was goodbye. I was hoping that it was turned around. Yeah. Well, Donna Jean, I just have one more question for you. Okay. What does it mean to you to be Southern? (laughs) Boy, what a loaded question. In one way, it's everything. Most of everything that I am came from who I am and what I was, where I was born, how I was raised. My mother and father were the best of human beings. My mother was a mathematician. My father was a pilot. I grew up with a sensitivity of you can, you can, you can, you can. And as far as I could, I did. And the downside is there's so much that needs to be done down here. You know that, Sid. Yeah. There's so much that needs to be done. And I'm so hopeful that the things that need to be done will be done and just elevate anything negative into positive, that the South has so much to give. It's so rich. And there's so much hope for everything, not only in the South, but in America, for what we can do as a nation, what we can accomplish worldwide, and be a people who care about each other and are willing to do whatever it takes to make it better for all people. That's my stance, period. Well, Donna Jean Godshow McKay, thanks for being on Biscuits and Jam. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Donna Jean Godshow McKay. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. 
Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuitsandjam. Our theme song is by Sean Watkins of Nickel Creek. We'll be running encores of my conversations with Reed Drummond and Chris Stone Kingfish Ingram over the next couple of weeks. So I hope you'll join us for those and then come back for a bunch of new episodes. We'll see you then. 